looks like you're there. Are you there? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. <laughs> well, then I guess we're going to do this Look at you. Thing. That is so funny. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Good evening, good evening. Hello, my name is Jay Ryan. This is uh, the Late Night Playset. Welcome back to it. We have a great guest I was just saying hello to very quickly. <laughs> I can't wait to talk to her and have her see me sitting here of all places. Uh, Madeline Smithberg is here, host of Mad in the Kitchen. I'm supposed to plug that furiously, fastly, furiously. Relentlessly. <laughs> Madeline uh, Smithberg is here. Uh, we're going to talk all about The Daily Show. We're going to talk about probably the Letterman days and anything else she wants to as well. Um, but welcome back to you at home. Tonight is Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Uh, that's a personal one for me. That was my dad's birthday. My dad passed away when I was 18 years old, a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> but uh, he would have been 81 years old today, which is kind of crazy to me. Kind of crazy. So happy birthday, Dad. Um, Madeline. I'm so oh, excited. I can to... make it even more depressing with the dead dad theme. I um, saw your post. Yesterday... Please tell everybody. Yeah. No, yesterday was my birthday, September 23rd. And uh, six years ago, to yesterday, uh, my dad died on my birthday. Uh, mm. And, you know, just kind of ruining it forever. Yeah, that's just, but... that's it. Um, if it, you know, speaking of ruined birthdays, I was born on my mother's birthday, so I kind of sort of never, ever had one. <laughs> you never had a birthday. That's like people that are born on Christmas or, or New Year's Eve. I always felt terrible for them as kids. Yeah. When absolutely. I was a kid. Um, thank you so much for doing our little show. I'm delighted to talk to you. I have known your work for a long, long time. I don't think we've ever worked together, although I did some work with The Daily Show, but I don't believe we ever crossed paths. I left in 2002. Yeah. This would have only been like five years ago. So, yeah, definitely no. not. So, so, no. But I, it probably still, like, if you were in the building, it probably smelled great. And that was my, you know, the lingering aroma <laughs> of me. <laughs> um, I don't know where. Can we start? Can we start with how on earth you got into this business? And then maybe we can uh, segue eventually into the Jon Stewart show because I used to watch that one as well. Yeah, that one was a super fun one. Okay, so I'll give it to you in a like you know the a condensed version, so I don't bore people to death. Um, <laughs> but I got into it sort of probably the most unique and original way that anybody ever has, which is I did a semester abroad my junior year in college uh, in Siena, which is in Italy, and I became pretty fluent in Italian and. Uh, when I uh, graduated from college, uh, I had always wanted to go into TV or film, but I had this idea that you couldn't unless you knew somebody. So I didn't know anybody, but I knew Italian. And uh, that seemed to be the thing that got me in because I was working as a, like a sort of a very glorified lackey for the mother of a boy I'd gone to nursery school with so i guess i did have that connection i was really compelling in the blocks building and uh they marked me and said you gotta hire this one when she learns how to talk but um so i heard there was an office of rai which is italian national television in new york 
and I sent in a, a resume cold. This is the only time this has ever happened, probably in the history of the entertainment business. I sent in a resume, uh, just, you know, to whom it may concern. And then it was like the joke we had in New York that you order Chinese food and as soon as you hang up, your doorbell rings. Yeah. Because I put the resume in the mailbox and then I got a call, like, when can you start? And essentially, and I don't want to insult anybody who is Italian because I am Italian by, as I say, adottazione. I'm a fake American Italian. I love everything about the culture, but I also feel it gives me the, uh, you know, the leeway to be a little bit critical from time to time. And so the Italian television was state-run television and everybody that worked in the office in New York was enjoying some form of nepotism which meant that they didn't have a very strong work ethic. They were there for the free espresso and the free phone lines and, you know, the two hour lunch followed by another espresso and then a nap, and then you would go home. And so the idea to Italian television that you could have someone who could speak their language, but had an American work ethic was very appealing. So I, uh, I, I started, I was like the assistant to the woman that was overseeing all production in the United States for Rome. Whoa. And I mean, uh, this, sound, this sounds like a big deal. It was amazing. The place was like a little microcosm of Italy. You had, you know, people from the South, people from the North, people, it was very class-based. So like the president was nobility and had a ring with the family seal on his pinky, like, do you have a family seal? <laughs> no. I mean, this is not something that happens to us. No, we have no And crests. he wore a cape. And then he had like a chauffeur who would, his job other than driving him was to take the cape off and fold it carefully and place it on a couch so no one could sit in the couch because the cape was there. And you would step off the elevator and there would be like a cloud of espresso fumes. And then you would hear a lot of people talking very loud and, of course, motioning with their hands. And uh, it was hilarious. The receptionist was from the south of Italy. And I think she had been in the United States probably like 15 years, but her English was not so good. And she would they put her on answering the phones. So she would answer the phones. Recuperation, may I help you? Recuperation, good afternoon. And it was a mix of like Brooklyn and, and Southern Italian accent. And uh, I once heard her say, I'm sorry, uh, I can, he cannot come to the phone right now because he's not in his desk. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and then get I heard back. her say once, Get him back in his desk. I'm sorry, <laughs> he can't talk to you right now. He's in the bathroom. I'm like, you're not supposed to say that. But uh, I rose through the ranks very quickly. And after about two years, they threw me in so far over my head that it was hysterical. And they had me, who was like 23 years old, executive producing a two-hour live special from Lincoln Center uh, on the occasion of RAI being honored by the international uh, arm of the TV Academy. And it involved uh, recreations of the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria made out of carnations. Oh it had uh, 
we had to dismantle an Alfa Romeo. There were two chefs, which always works well. And uh, one at the Rainbow Room, Tony May, and the other one, Giuliano Bujali. And then there was like every like star in Italy just trotted out. So we had Carla Fracci, the ballerina. It was just crazy. And it was it me. Sounds, I didn't it even sounds have crazy food. now in your career, let alone the first thing you ever did. I don't know how I survived. But after that, I was like the, the James Bond of freelance producers for RAI. And I did all this fabulous stuff. And then the and somewhere along there, I decided, I heard this rumbling of this show that was on at 1230. Ah. And it was with this guy named David Letterman. And 1230 was so late and you, there were no VCRs. Uh, <laughs> so you had to actually stay up and watch it. There weren't going to be clips the next day on your phone. No. There weren't. Mobile phones had not even been invented yet. Yeah, and, you wanted uh, to be relevant like, at the water cooler back, there's a reference, but you had you had to know what happened last night. Yeah, you totally did. Or in the case of REI at the espresso machine. But um, Of course. <laughs> they don't drink a lot of water. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I stayed up late one night, and uh, I watched Dave. And it was not an entertainment experience. Mm. It was a calling. I saw the show and I declared to nobody, I was alone, that I had to work there. They didn't know it yet, but I was gonna work there. And I sort of launched this one young woman campaign, pulling every you know thread I could to get in. And I got to go to a taping because Italian TV had a deal with NBC and I, Oh went gosh. to the taping and I, and I saw Morty, who would become my boss, Robert Morton. He was a segment producer at the time. And I remember thinking, I want to be that guy. And I what, would. What year I mean, was and, this uh, about? What, so was this would have been uh, 85. Okay, so Morty was just segment producing back then, right? He was just segment. Barry Sands was the producer for like the first right, year right, I was right, there. Right, 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 okay. So I, I reached out to a couple of people and I didn't have any leads and it wasn't happening. And so I got offered a job for Italian TV. Sorry, I just knocked my computer. So I didn't have like an epileptic seizure. But, <laughs> I, I was uh, wondering, I'll take this moment to zoom in. It's all good. <laughs> there's a, there's a, uh, a little bit of an earthquake here. No, <laughs> it was just me knocking my screen, which is not good to do on this sort of situation. But anyway, so I... Uh, they, I, got, I took a job where I was the United States Bureau for a show that is six hours long. Six hours long. What? On every Sunday. It was a wraparound. Six, six hours? Six That's hours. ridiculous. <laughs> Huge with a giant studio audience. Like, it was an institution. It is. It's oh, still God. on. But now there's a lot more options. Then there were four channels, and we were three of them. But uh, so they would have like a soccer game, a movie, and then studio segments woven around it. And so I sent Tony Robbins to Rome and he walked on hot coals. The host of my show walked on hot coals. We, I had Yuri Geller in New York. We did a satellite and he oh, ended the, up the, fixing. The, the spoons and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Just a to be on Johnny all the time. He, exactly. Sure. But he I, he, I would later have him on Dave, but he, uh, he came on to RAI and he was going to fix people's clocks. So he asked them to all bring their <laughs> broken clocks. your broken clocks. <laughs> Put them near the TV. So you have this image of all of Italy scrambling for broken clocks. Oh, wow. And putting them next to the TV. So I 
had a part in fixing uh, a very old uh, grandfather clock belonging to Federico Fellini. Wow. That he basically brought it toward the thing. Anyway, it was celebrity junkets and satellites, and they would send me to the junkets and send me a list of questions that I would translate into English and ask the celebrities, Jane Fonda, Kevin Bacon, Jeff Bridges, Sylvester Sloan. And uh, then I wouldn't, I'd be off camera. And when they broadcast it, they would pretend it was live and they would just put a little, uh, you know, Chiron <clears throat> in the corner that said indirecta, which means live. But it wasn't live. They just put the letters on it and pretended. What's well, kind of like these days? Cool. Everything's breaking news. And they just leave that up. They'll, they'll leave the Chiron up news. all the time. Oh, sometimes I'm going to kill my phone when it's like I get a, a news alert and it's like, you know, eggplant is undervalued as a source of fiber. I'm like, that is not breaking news. You're Don't right. you do that. To or just something so dated. The Lindbergh baby. I mean, something just yeah, totally they, not <laughs> today. It's okay. They set up a GoFundMe. It's going to be all right. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Uh, but anyway, so uh, and then. I was doing live satellites from all over the country that were ridiculous, like the Custer Battlefield at the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Little Bighorn. It's a field. And I get there and I'm like, what am I going to go? Like, the grass is here. You know, there was absolutely nothing. So they had me pay a, a, a Native American shaman of some sort. And he did a, a, a ceremony and that's what we went to. And I, it was just crazy. It, it sounds like everything you were doing was so crazy and ridiculous. It was almost preparing you for that job that you declared that which, you were going to get. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't notice it. And then it started happening. They started getting really fixated on what they called Americana and what you and I would call freaks. But uh, and <laughs> special interest and stories. Letterman, we would later, later call it human interest. Which human is sort interest, of very right. human interest stories. Right. It was human interest guests and human interest stories. And I, uh, so I was sending swimming babies where they constructed like a swimming pool in the studio in Rome, and these babies from Syosset, Long Island, swam <laughs> underwater through little rings. And I sent a guy who uh, got into a rattle. He was from the Heart of Texas Snake Handlers uh, organization, and he would. Get into a sleeping bag with thirty-five venomous rep, uh, you know, the no. rattlesnakes, and not get hurt. But I had to send those to Rome. It was pre-9/11. There was a whole like it was Pan Am doesn't exist anymore, and it right. was like serpent, comma, venomous, and everything you had to do to get them on the plane. So it, it was snakes on a plane. I have had before it. that was. Yeah, I did <laughs> when I sent them on the plane. But anyway, that so one day I have to. They asked me to track down a 12-year-old whistling champion named Amy Rose, who's from somewhere in Tennessee. And I call the parents and they say, they have one tape. It's a cassette of her, this champion whistler. Like they only recorded it on one device with one tape. Only and one they time, sent, yeah. <laughs> one time. And they had sent that tape. <laughs> She's whistling all day long. They just didn't think of like maybe documenting Practicing for it. years. <laughs> <laughs> but we only recorded it that one time. And we sent the tape to a woman named Darcy at the Tonight Show. So all of a sudden, a light bulb goes off in my head because Darcy had been one of the people that I had called. She was working at Letterman. 
and I had a very good friend who said, call my friend Darcy. And I called his friend Darcy and she was no help at all. She said, Madeline, you're not going to get a job at Letterman. Nobody ever leaves. Uh, I can't recommend you if I don't meet you. And I can't meet you because I'm getting married and moving to California. And that was the last I heard from Darcy until I called her up trying to get hold of this tape, the cassette tape of the 12-year-old whistling champ. And uh, But only she has. Very nice. I didn't say anything. And she was very nice. I just said, yes, Madeline Smith worked from Italian TV, worked for a show in Rome, and we're interested in sending Amy Rose to Rome to whistle for everybody. You know, we have six hours to fill. And uh, she said, well, Madeline, what do People you do? People don't know how hard that is, Madeline. People don't know how hard it is to fill an hour, let alone six. <laughs> I know, I know. Sometimes three minutes is interminable. <laughs> All adorable people, though. You could never imagine a bunch of more. And I'm still really good friends with people that I worked with this, that I see when I go to Italy sometimes. But anyway, uh, so she's like, what are you doing? I go, well, I scour country, among other things, and I find unusual stories. And she's like, oh, my God, we should become friends. We should become contacts. So we started exchanging ideas. And I never mentioned the the you know how she had dissed me until, like, you know, I had a couple of guests under my belt. I didn't want to like. Make By the way, you ended up working there. You know what she was saying was true. I mean, they did. They did hire one within, and and nobody ever left. Yeah, and, they and only it hired. Kind of was all interns. accurate. Was no way. I was never getting it. Uh, <laughs> I defied like sort of the laws of nature by by landing it. So I, uh, I she gives me a karate chopping grandmother. I give her a min a nun who's a dwarf who races miniature horses and you know we start talking then it's going to be a little personal not as funny for you but it's part of the story so somewhere in there i i fall in love and i meet this really cute architect named sam packard and we fall madly in love and we are you know dating and they at the end of the domenica inn the show i was working for they sent sam packard and i each business class tickets like that would happen now uh to go to rome for the last show and the party so we go to rome he had lived in in uh, bologna and venice and spoke italian it was like this crazy uh trip and uh we the host of our of my show gives us the use of his house on the mediterranean for five nights we're having like a honeymoon and i'm diving into the blue waters and eating all kinds of amazing food and I go on, my parents just bought a little place in Tuscany and they didn't speak Italian. So I went to help my parents buy toilets and bidets and faucets. And uh, <laughs> Sam went back to New York and there was there was no internet. You, a phone call was like a year's salary. You'd only right. call oh, someone. Yeah. someone Long distance dead. was like 30 miles away, let alone across the world. Correct, correct. So when you're, you were out of touch, out of touch. And... Uh, so I was like on cloud nine and floating around Tuscany, buying bidets with my parents, and uh, which is a very romantic thing to do. Anyway, just imagine your dad like washing his ass as you're shopping. But uh, and I helped. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, I, I go back. I stayed two weeks, and I go home, and uh, I get to my apartment and. Greenwich Village, and I Sam is nowhere to be seen. I'm a little bit perturbed, and uh, I call him. And I, as I'm dialing the rotary dial of the phone attached to the wall, just carbon right date here. it. 
it right here. I, here we go. There you go. Oh my god, you have it. Fuck that one called Bangor, Maine, so many times. But anyway, <laughs> I uh, I saw a note on my pillow from my roommate's mother, and it was like I just picked it up. I didn't like think about it. So I'm holding this piece of legal paper. I'm calling Sam. It's a visual hand thing. And he answers the phone. There's a long pause, which usually isn't leading to something you're going to want to hear. Yeah. And it's followed by, we have to talk, which is something you never want to oh hear. Gosh. And then it was, I've gone back to Fran, which had been the ex-girlfriend. So I'm about to vomit. I'm about to faint. I dropped the phone and in my mind, or at least in the movie rendition, it went down in slow motion because the cord had been wound. Oh, you bet. And uh, those phones do that all the time. And I'm trying to catch my breath and I don't know why, but I look at the piece of paper in my hand oh my and God. it says, called Darcy about a job at Letterman. So in one split second, my heart was broken and my dreams came true. And I never wow. processed the heartbreak because I dove into getting the job, which I had to pitch like 30 segment ideas. I was the human interest. Uh, you're already Booker. working. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then finally I had a meeting with Dave. Didn't think about it. Life went on. 30 years later, Sam Packard finds me on Facebook. And now I live in Seattle and we just got married on March 14th. Holy moly. I know. <laughs> well, in the end, you got both. Congratulations. I get a little bit of a 34-year gap. <laughs> wow. So I'm living proof, though, of you, one should never lose hope. Oh, I love that. You just you gave me all the th all the things. I just got all the things. I know, the hair stamp and then it's my own yeah, story, but well, it's I'm a, still you don't you don't know me at all, but I'm like a really sentimental guy. I'm really emotional and, and stuff. So um yeah, I love stories like that. And I could kind of tell when you were saying, you know, I fell madly in love with this guy and, and his name and I thought, Well, oh, this obviously ends better or he's this dead. Has to be it's one of the other <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's like what they say that, you know, if you see a door in a play, someone's coming through it. Like, why yeah, would I tell you? It, right. Oh, it's not decor. There would be no reason. It would be really awkward and weird. So I'd go to work at Letterman. Wow. And I was there for six years and it was my graduate school. You couldn't mess up. Like, you just couldn't. I used to say that the the clocks in Greenwich, England, where they sort of determine mean time and from which every other clock on planet Earth is set. Is correct. Are, yeah. Are, are, yeah, that those clocks get their information from when Dave loads the audience. Because the audience would load at 5.30 and the audience would load, load not at 5.29, not at 5.33, but at 5 fucking 30. Like, it was... Just the thing was a, 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 a you know, just a, a well-oiled machine with no room for error. And my task was to, you know, look across America and occasionally Canada and one really hilarious person from England uh, and find people who had comedic potential but weren't aware of it. It couldn't be people oh. that were trying to be funny. Right. They had to be funny in spite of themselves. And there was no internet. I read 35 local newspapers a day. My office was a train wreck. It looked like a hoarder's office, but that's just because every day, 35 newspapers, 
30 different magazines. I read, you know, the farmer's almanac religiously. I knew what the rainfall was going to be before anybody else. Um, I was raised on and, the farmer's almanac. I love that thing. I loved it. I loved it at Yankee magazine, Texas monthly, all these like crazy things. And then I would like, I knew every state fair, local fair, county fair, neighborhood, you know, fair in America. And I had the craziest Rolodex and I was in touch with all of every features reporter, both in print and on television across the country. And I would call them and make friends. And Hugh Hauser was a sort of stringer oh, for me. One of the best hosts out there, sure. The best ever. I mean, Hugh Hauser and I mean, Charles in that he Carole was himself, like, in that he was that guy. Was totally that guy. But he would like tell me about things that maybe I should look into. Uh, but I had people all over the country sending me, you know, the B people and uh, just all kinds of stuff. And I knew I went to every circus. I went to every just convention. I got a toy fair. Oh, uh, I, I you know, it was just amazing. But it was like this giant, you know, you're doing five shows a week. I think we were doing five shows a week. At some point, it was four. But there mostly was four it was five. at one point, and, yeah. Yeah, it was four. It was four shows a week. They were an hour. <clears throat> and it's like this voracious animal that, it you know, is if you don't feed it, it's going to eat you. And yes. so <laughs> you never get ahead of it. You yeah. just And sort the moment of you finally it. get it and you, you put your feet up, you're like, oh, we got to do it again tomorrow. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so you, the good news is. From scratch. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the good news is no you know, failure stays with you that you have 24 hours to mourn and then everybody forgets it. Cause there's like right. this group it's herd amnesia. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a really good way to put it. That occurs on, on most of those shows and, and well, anything, I guess anything oh, yeah. of that sort. that's a really good way to put it. Heard. I just made that up. <laughs> yeah. But it's, <laughs> I, I mean, you know how poignant it is. You know how good. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I am. If you couldn't tell by looking at what you're, <laughs> who you're talking to here, <laughs> I, yeah, am, no, I, I am like I was beyond a nerd. Of course, I went to tapings. I never got the job. I went a different route. But um, um, I wanted like what years were you there? At, at I was there. And from I'm assuming 80, you were at the old show, right? I was at the old show. Yeah, I was there from 1986 to 1992, and my last night. On late night was Johnny Carson's last night at the Tonight Show, and I like to say he kind of eclipsed my departure. A uh, little bit, a little bit, a little bit. He had a better publicist, um, <laughs> and I, I uh, yeah, I left to start. I somewhere along the line, I, I mean, I booked Kmar, the magician, Jack Hanna. I loved Kmar. I love Jack Hanna is my wife's absolute favorite. He was from, amazing. From that show. Jack was absolutely amazing and the people that came with it like a whole team of them would come Do and you... it was so cool because we could play with the animals so i would oh, wow. i've held tiger cubs baby chimpanzees uh i went to the columbus zoo and i got to go in the cage uh in the pen with the cheetahs i mean i was treated like royalty i was on the stage for dwight yoakam concert with the governor of ohio <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm like the governor. Here you. You I got the city, I bet. I booked Jack on Letterman, and he was like, oh, gesticulating, you know, genuflecting to me and all that kind of stuff. So it was just, 
it was amazing. I mean, I, it, it, it was so hard, but so gratifying. And I was lucky because I always had a really good relationship with Dave. He, he didn't know quite what to do with me, but I amused him. So I would tell him funny stories and that would make him laugh. And uh, oh, I wish I had thought of this. I have this great picture of when he retired at the party. He was hugging me uh, because we always had this thing where I, I hugged him. No, no, everyone else was too scared, but I would just be like, I don't care. And I would just give him a big giant hug and go, I love you, David Letterman. And he would say, I love you, Madeline Smithberg. And uh, when he retired, they threw a party at the Friars Club. And it was rumored that he wasn't coming. And then he showed up. Well, I remember seeing I the pictures. He had the Foo Fighters shirt on and the whole bit. Yep, yep, yep. And he opened his arms, and I got the hug, and he said, I said, I love you, David Letterman. He said, I love you, Madeline Smithberg. How's that uh, boy of yours? And I said, he's great. And then he went, okay, get her off of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that warms my heart. What a great story. Um, yeah, uh, you probably are aware of the Don Giller YouTube channel, I'm assuming. Oh yes, Don. All right, and I so very so you, good friend. So you became you became public again with the Husky Idler incident. The Husky Idler. Was it Lori Diamond I, who was? Uh, it was Lori in the, Diamond in the... ran the marathon, <laughs> and I was told that it was a good idea to bring people bananas, and so I waited for her at like you know mile twenty three. For hours. This is David Letterman's assistant at the time, for anybody who has no idea yeah. who the hell we're talking about. Right, yeah, it was Dave's assistant. We called her Diamond, um, and we were pals, and so I was supporting her, and I had this banana, and I waited, and she runs by, and I give it to her. Well, uh, that, that was, you know, the marathon was on a Sunday or, at, or on the weekend, and the Monday afterwards, they had footage of her, and... Uh, he goes, and you see me running in and handing her a banana. Well, but and it's they, mid. It's mid uh, uh, race, right? It's not. Uh, I mean, yeah. maybe it's towards the end. I'm assuming, but it was not uh, after the finish line. Everyone was still. No, running. no, no. This was to give her energy to to give her potassium, right? To like take her home. Some people gave water, but I was like, I'm gonna do a banana, and uh, and so Dave starts making fun of me goes well you're just running along and then all of a sudden you're attacked by uh and i'm in the i'm backstage and he says what were you in the hallway in the green room where were you yeah i think i was in the green room all right you don't know this about me i worked in that i worked on conan so i worked in that same studio for years and years after yeah Yeah. so it was the green room the tiniest green room in show business and uh (laughs) It it was half a green room it was really not even green. It was just, yeah. And the, the seats were very narrow. They yeah, it was bench them. seating in a long, narrow, weird thing. Yeah, yeah. it was like a subway. Uh, but anyway, it was, it, it was what it was. But I was in the green room watching the show. And he says, he calls me a husky idler. And at this point, I've been there a while. And I feel comfortable. I never ever would have done this in the first like you know three years of my tenure there and i just opened door to the studio and i went husky idler (laughs) and he was like oh no madeline and he came over and just you know gave me a bear hug but i pushed him away because i was pretending to be really angry but i wasn't it was just sort of funny 
Oh, and so, God. yeah, that was like a claim, to, a claim to fame. I have so many. The, uh, but was, somewhere along the, the line. What I saw in yeah. that clip, which is what I think delighted everyone else, was there you could see a genuine discomfort in Dave. Dave saw that he potentially had hurt your feelings. I felt like from when I watched this clip, it looked like, oh, you might be playing it up a little bit. Yes, it might have a little bit, but I'm going to go do my thing and whatever. But it seemed to me like, oh, gosh, I, I really put my foot in my mouth here and hurt somebody I care about's feelings. And, yeah. and I really, you know, we're going to get through this together, but I, I really, I don't, I don't care for this situation. And he was, he was visibly shaken. He was. Which is cool because it's hard time, to flap he, Dave. <laughs> which is almost impossible, which is why so many of my segments were the magical ones. Cause that's where he got flapped. Uh, so like, uh, <laughs> but I think that he, he also is a comedy genius and he realized the comedy potential in him acting embarrassed was going to get him yeah, absolutely. more mileage in terms of just the discomfort. And you always played to the discomfort, but what was so fabulous about my, my By the way, we have domain. we have a blue door solely for that purpose. That's why we have this. Oh, my. Okay, you <laughs> are crazy. That is so cool. I really want to know, but I'm sure you've told the story a thousand times of how you got it. But what What's did that? you do oh. for Conan? Uh, I was a I, <laughs> I have told all this stuff a million times. Uh, yeah, I was just a production to. assistant in at NBC, and I I was um, doing my apprenticeships. I was a terrible student in high school, so the my junior and senior year, the school set up internships for me. At, at the first year was like at the local place in Connecticut, and then, uh, by the way, I didn't tell you this: I grew up in the same town Dave used to live in too. So when he was on the air telling all these stories and whatever, I'm one of the kids who's just like, hey, he's talking about the guy at the grocery store. He's talking about the guy at the gas station. All that. Oh, stuff. that's hilarious! Is it Greenwich or no? I was in Wilton, Garrett? right on the border of New Canaan. He was Wait. on New Can- in New Canaan, okay. right on the border of Wilton. So we were yeah, 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 opposite yeah, yeah. towns, but. Through the woods, right there. We call that the inner city. <laughs> <laughs> it was rural. It was rural. <laughs> Very uh, but yeah, so I worked on everything in the building, really. But I started at Conan, and Rosie O'Donnell was there at the time, and uh, Saturday Night Live, Dateline, when it first started. It, 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 it is stuff. an amazing building, Thirty Rock, uh, because so much is happening in the building. You've got the news you have the today show you have saturday night live we used to see on our monitors we had the in-house feed and every i think it was thursday the musical guest would uh, rehearse all day long and you would just run down you know, go one down one elevator up another and you could stand in the back of the studio and hear you know pearl jam it was just amazing we used to do the same thing absolutely yeah it's, and, and I remember and we during alone. The, I mean, everybody in the building kind of would sort of congregate if you saw the feed and could get away yeah, for 15 minutes. No, it minutes. was just a perk. It was a perk of working in that building. And the building itself is so beautiful and historical. And then Christmas comes and the Christmas tree goes up and then it becomes hell on earth. You couldn't go get lunch because there were just so many people. So Dave would go on the air and say, people, it's just a tree. There is nothing... <laughs> To see, it is just like the tree that you will have in your living room. Stay home. Do not waste your time. Every one year, he told everybody, "Yep, they put it up this weekend, and they and they took it down. Took it down on Monday. No, nope. so don't think about oh. driving into the city. There's nothing to see. Don't come in." <laughs> Hilarious. Um, but I loved it, and you would go to the the commissary, and there would be Al Roker getting you know a literally every sandwich. day. Same here. Same here. Yeah. Did, do and, you remember uh, Spike Ferriston from that time? 
or just in general? Of course, I remember Spike Ferris. He he was a guest here last week, and uh, and we were talking. We oh, had really? very similar experiences. Of you know, sure, we all wanted to work for Dave or Saturday Night Live or something. But once you actually get there in that building, there is an energy that is indescribable, or at least there was then. This live television, this broadcasting, this like we are the antenna for the rest of the world. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I really feel like beyond fortunate to have been able to work there for six years and have it be my reality for six years and never really get used to it or tired of it. So one time I do this segment, I had gone to the, this ties into this, I had gone to the uh, Texas State Fair and I found uh, this uh, man, he was, Scottish, and he had border collies that were so well-trained that they could do incredible things herding sheep. And I knew that Dave would love the idea of border collies herding sheep. So I, I booked him, and, uh, but we had to find, we, he didn't, couldn't bring the sheep on the airplane. He brought the dogs, and uh, so I had to find local sheep, and the sheep that I ended up getting... <laughs> <laughs> really I'm just laughing. At, we've got cross probably. unions with our. We've got cross unionization with our with our our sheep here. <laughs> I guess the wrong sheep. So we're rehearsing, uh, last minute sort of rehearsal, and uh, we're practicing what we're going to do. And the bit is that the dogs are going to herd the sheep out of the studio, down the hall, and onto. The- to the ground floor and they're going to get in a taxi they're going to go to LaGuardia I mean really they were just going around the block but but regardless everything you said until LaGuardia sounds impossible it happened it'll happen Uh, the LaGuardia was the only thing they just went around the block but anyway so these sheep are very unruly and it's getting late and I'm you know the audience is going to get loaded because Greenwich needs to know what time it is at 5.30 (laughs) And uh, so nice callback. I, uh, <laughs> so well, the, they go out of the studio. So far, the plan is working. But instead of turning right to go toward the elevators, they go straight. And someone has opened the door and they go right into the set of Live at Five, which is the local news program that shot across the hall. Right, directly and across, the- and it was literally live in the tri-state area from 5 to 6 o'clock, which is coincidentally Correct. your first half hour. <laughs> Correct. And uh, the sheep go in, and Sue Simmons was the anchor. I love her. And, oh, she's amazing. I don't know yeah, if she's Yeah, she and Jack Cafferty were great. Yeah, phenomenal. And she, all of a sudden, these giant sheep, come, you know, glumping whatever sheep do as a movement into the set. And she's just like, oh, Dave, what's going on now? So that's just like a little illustration of life at 30 Rock. Uh, But we used to go to Saturday Night Live, like, after parties. We never wanted to go to the tapings because who wants to go to a taping of a show uh, when you work at a show? You don't want to sit in the audience, but we would wait and watch it at home and then go to the parties and hang out with Al Franken. Like he never wanted to sit next to Al Franken because he talked so much. But now in <laughs> retrospect, I'm like, 
that was all Franken. Like, why didn't I want to sit with them? <laughs> uh, so it was, it was, and then we, they would have their end of the season party uh, down in, it was, wasn't the ice skating rink anymore. It was just the outdoor restaurant. And it was just, you're in the, you know, center of Manhattan, the, the yeah. heart of the world. And everywhere you look is a famous person who you admire because they're hilarious. <laughs> and it's open bar. I mean, come on, how great is that for you're, just, you're describing what some of those are some of my favorite memories also. In fact, the night I decided to move to Los Angeles was a Saturday Night Live season finale rap party at, at the whatever That's the Metropolitan hilarious. Museum. Yeah, it was totally fun. Um, I, 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 could, I could talk about 30 Rock with you for days and days and days. Um, but I do want to talk about both Matt in the Kitchen and a little bit about The Daily Show and also Jon Stewart. Because I used to watch The Jon Stewart Show. Were you on? Did you do the MTV one or the syndicated one? Oh, yeah. Oh, I produced both of those. Okay, so they're all going to tie together, and I'll try to make it tight. Because how much more time do we have? This? No, no, it's it's we're on your timetable. <laughs> Yours and Greg. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. He he he. Um, call back. So uh, I uh, somewhere along during my time, Matt Letterman, there had been a kind of we don't book chefs, hmm. and then one day. We had a, uh, a guest fallout, the lead guest, which means the first guest, the one that does two segments at the beginning of the show, which we call the top of the show because we're in show business. And uh, someone canceled, like there was a death in the family. And we it was 11 in the morning and we needed a guest for that night. And that had never happened. Like we had been the night before, 11, 12, panicking. But day of had not really ever happened, and everybody was on, you know, red alert. So we Marv got this. Wasn't available. Uh, no, <laughs> no, Marv wasn't. Regis, for some reason, we were just like striking out all the kind of go tos. Even Kmart was booked. Um, Thanks to you, by the way. Well, Thanks to you, Madeline Smithberg. Uh, but maybe we had just had him on or something like that. Like so. We got this thing called Celebrity Service, and it was a printed piece of paper. Ha, 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 how adorable. And it had a list of every celebrity that was in New York, what they were doing, and a contact number for them. So I see that Wolfgang Puck, the chef, uh, had been on Good Morning America. So I called Good Morning America, and I talked to the booker. It's like booker to booker. And How uh, was it? How, do, how was he? Oh, so it was a, a woman, and she was super nice. She said, Madeline, I would love to help you, but he does all his, I don't, he was on this morning, yes, but he does all his own uh, arrangements. We just, you know, give him a stipend, so I don't know what hotel. Oh, wow. So I called, you know, I sort of used common sense, and I just started calling hotels, and on the third one, I found him at, like, the Ritz-Carlton <laughs> And they sent me up to, you know, the phone call up to his room. And I got him on the phone. And he said, oh, sure. I'll be there at 2 o'clock. So Wolfgang. Three hours from now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was Wolfgang. Just the greatest. And he came on. And it was, I don't know. It was a clip that ended up in a lot of uh, anniversary show packages. He He brought a truffle. And he asked Dave what it smelled like. Oh, I remember this. 
Yeah, and Dave said, I, I don't know any William Puck says in his Austrian accent, it smells like sex. And Dave goes, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, geez, and it's so like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a classic Dave, boom. So all of a sudden, the floodgates are open, and now I can book chefs. Now we have to go back a little bit, which is, I have been obsessed with food since I was 12 years old and my parents took me to Europe. I ate something in, in a restaurant in, in uh, Brittany, France, when I was 12, which was quail with grapes that sort of like changed my life. And just like watching Dave was a calling, when I 12-year-old me ate this Kai au raisin, I heard opera music. Whoa. And it was very cinematic. But I, I had this revelation that you could do really incredible things with food. And I basically taught myself how to cook. Like my parents got me the young French chef and I made my way through and I made every single recipe. And then I just worked my way up and I became obsessed. And then I studied in Italy and got more obsessed and learned more. And it was the type of thing where I worked in television and that was my job, but my passion was food. And I would cook for all of my friends. I would, you know, it just was like a part of who I was and always has been. And I never thought about it that much. It just was there. You know, I would wake up every day of my life planning I was going to cook for dinner. Uh, and I still do that. And it's really annoying. But it just is there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a burden and a blessing, and that's how it is. But uh, so now all of a sudden I'm booking chefs on Letterman, and I am getting private cooking lessons backstage as we're prepping the, the cooking segments. By the Julia way, the cooking Child, segments were my favorite. They were the most fun thing amazing. to watch Dave interact with, whether it was actually Julia Child or – and by the way, I went to only two tapings in that old studio, both of which had cooking segments. <laughs> we, we really Bobby Flay and, uh, and somebody else. I can't remember. Yeah, no. I, it once Because Dave was great with them. And the thing about a cooking segment, which of course is what I'm doing now, but – it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it's got that sort of Aristotelian uh. structure built in. Like in the end, you've got something, you taste it. There's a process, but there's another personality for him to interact with, but they have a job to do. So it takes the pressure off of the comedy and the conversation. And so Interesting. not only am I, you know, or, or it's uh, Jacques Pepin, Pierre Frenet teaching me how to truss a chicken and uh, Julie and I became like that. Top chefs in the world are coming through and I get to hang out with them backstage and structure their segments. I'm producing their segments. And then it, and then I have this amazing thing where I can eat in any restaurant in New York that I want to just, if I call them up and say, I'm interested in their chef. And I went to Le Cirque where a very famous chef named Danielle Boulou who now is restaurant Danielle. He's one of the top chefs in the world. He's French. He was at Le Cirque and I and my ex-husband are sitting there and courses and courses and courses are coming out. And in a restaurant like that, it's like a choreography with the waiters, with the trays and they're circling around. It looks like a marching band routine and they put the plates down and you have utensils. I'm like, why do I have a trowel? Like, I know they're going to laugh at me, but what am I supposed to do with this thing? Like, you give like 10 different utensils. And I just felt like, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies or something. Cause I was like, 
are we going to go digging? Like, why do we have this trowel? Uh, but uh, it, I think it was a fish knife. But anyway. The, I was going to say, so by the way, I don't know. I'm also uncultured, apparently. I don't know the answer to what this device is you have. Who would? It's maybe such maybe a the, but, the little butter patter thing? No, no, no. That was a totally separate one. There were like three of those of different lengths, but then there was a the thing that literally <laughs> course, looked so. like. How silly of me. And I could see you eat fish with the sauce. But anyway, I was terrified of, of messing up and being called out, you know, being exposed for my lack of culture. But uh, so they were sending out so much food that the man at the next table asked the maitre d' who I was. Oh, wow. That man was Henry Kissinger. <gasps> <laughs> I can just picture him doing the blot first. Who is she? <laughs> who is this woman that is getting all this? Does not Whoa. know what the trowel is. So, so, anyway, so you got outserved. Are you outserved, Henry? K- yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I can't say that he's right. We'll figure out the math hey, another time. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's got a Nobel Prize. Whatever. I got the I, extra like chicken dish. But anyway, so I'm booking all these chefs. I'm going to all these restaurants. It's just insanity. It's total insanity. I'm not even 30 years old yet. And, uh, Okay, so I come up with an idea for a show. And I'm not going to even go into that really much, but Dave comes on board as my uh, 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 executive producer, and we end up selling the show to Fox. Uh, basically, it's what I do, the people I do, but but in their elements, because it, it all got inspired to me, because there was this woman who spent her entire life developing a self-cleaning house. Her name was Frances Gabe. And it was like, you know, ridiculous. All the floors are slanted because they have drains in them. Everything's coated in plastic. Like she was onto the Roomba before anybody else. Sure. But, was, but you would think she spent so much money. It was just like, Frances, hire a maid. Like, but she was so obsessed. But you couldn't really bring her into the studio because you had to see her in the house and I right. would later the house get, is the thing, right? That's the thing. So a Whitney Brown would do that piece on, uh, on the daily oh, show oh, in sure, like sure. year two. And, uh, he took a shower with his suit on in <laughs> like, you know, it was oh, just you're really serious. Weird. He did this, this actual piece at the woman's I, house. I got to have closure with Francis. Oh, Gabe. Cool. I sent Whit- That's so funny. Yeah. I sent Whit to go, uh, experience it. Uh, but anyway, I, I developed the show. It was called Offbeat America, and Dave had come on as executive producer, and we sold it to Fox. And then uh, Dave fired his agent and hired CAA and Mike Ovitz, and they could have asked NBC, look, we're going to do this show with Fox because NBC had passed. But Mike Ovitz said, no, I don't want them to – I don't want to be beholden to them for anything. So my show died. But based on how easy it had been, like, you – come across a woman with a self-cleaning house. You have an idea that maybe there's a TV show out there. You write a proposal and then you give it to Jack Rollins, who is Dave's executive producer and manager and Woody Allen's manager and one of the all-time greats of greats of greats. And Jack uh, brings it to Dave and Dave says, absolutely. And next thing you know, you're having cherries at the, you know, duck with cherries at the Four Seasons and you've got a green light from Fox. It was so easy that it gave me really false confidence. 
And I have a dear friend who's still my dear friend, Elise Roth, just spoke to her this morning. And she was a producer in uh, commercials and uh, worked for the film unit at SNL for a while, too. But uh, she's like, she had been, we had done the offbeat America thing together. And she was saying, come on, leave Letterman and you and I will start a company and we'll develop TV shows about food. And we'll do television shows about food that are funny and entertaining, not necessarily cooking, but eating. And so we, I, 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 she convinced me. I retired, but I gave six months notice. Dave was an angel and was like, you know, the door is open for you anytime. I remember he said, he said, you have good ideas. He said, so few people have good ideas, but you have good ideas. And you're going to end up with anything you dream of, the house in Bel Air, any of it. And uh, they would later, wow. in parentheses, ask me, they would ask me when they hired Craig Kilborn to go to the Late Late Show, uh, they, uh, they asked me to go produce it. And Dave and Rob Burnett, who was the executive producer and ran Worldwide Pants, called me in. And I would end up at that moment, I'm skipping over the Jon Stewart show, but I didn't know what to do because I had I had gone through hell trying to have a child. And I finally had adopted my son and he was three months old. And my parents were like really upset because I was thinking of moving from Chelsea to the Upper West Side, which if you don't know New York, it's like a 15 minute subway ride. But my parents were like, no, don't take the grandbaby away from us. <laughs> and so I, uh, now I'm being asked to move to Los Angeles. And yeah. I don't really know what to do because I, I like Craig and I think that I've worked really well in a room. I don't know that I would do an hour with him. And so I called John, who I'd done the John Stewart show with and was very good friends with and said, what do I do? And he said, okay. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. John's very methodical. And he said, uh, are, do you, are you proud of The Daily Show? And I said, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I feel like we've found a new way to deliver comedy uh, and, and to both, you know, sort of do social commentary and impart information and make it hilarious. And I feel like we're really in new ground. And yeah. he went, hmm. And then he said, do you like the people you work with? I said, I love them. I, they're adorable. Uh, you know, they're, it's like an extended family. He said, are you excited going to work every day? And I said, I am so excited going to work every day to figure out what we're going to do with the hand that the world has dealt us. And, uh, and he told me later that in the process of having those conversations with me, he decided to take the job, which had been offered to him already, but he, he, it was offered to him in the beginning before Craig, but he was too fractured at that moment because of the, the John Stewart show getting canceled. Uh, so anyway, so let's go back now. I've, I leave Letterman, me and Johnny retire. That's and right. I, you and Johnny retire on May 22nd, uh, 1992. 1992. And I, uh, I form Half-Baked Productions with my friend Elise Roth, and we uh, conceive of a show and shoot a pilot for something called Eating New York. And it's pretty crazy because the guy that was our shooter, our DP, 
would go on to be the DP and then the director of The Sopranos and Mad Men. His name is Phil Abraham. He was my friend Diane Collier's husband. He just bought a new camera and wanted to play with it. Wow. Our writer was Kevin Kay, who would become like, you know, huge uh, head honcho or second to head honcho at Nickelodeon and uh, the president of Spike and is just one of the greatest guys in the world. And then there was me. So it was kind of like this pilot, which had all these like weird seeds of, you know, amazing greatness baked into it, so to speak, half-baked. Hey. So anyway, I didn't even know that. So we shoot the pilot. It's really funny. And it looks great. And it ends up on the desk of this woman named Eileen Katz, who's running original programming for Doug Herzog over at MTV. And she's got a stack of tapes and we're talking three quarter inch tapes. Yeah. That's what they were. And they're, they're so big. It's like half a phone book. A heavy. Yeah. And the machine, when you put them in, does this kind of Rube Goldberg thing a where chunk. it goes like, it's like Brazil, uh, the movie. <laughs> Harry Gilliam. Cool. So, uh, She's got this giant stack of uh, tapes on her desk that people have sent and she can't even see the door anymore because she's being like, you know, completely buried in three quarter inch tapes and she sees eating New York. Now she's a foodie. Like foodies are, it's like a cult. We don't talk to you about the fact that we're foodies, but we're just foodies. And if we meet each other, <laughs> we, you know, have a secret handshake. Um, so she was a foodie and she pops the cassette in and goes, car, 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 and she, uh, it's like a Willy Wonka thing. She watches and she's like very impressed. It's stylish. It's funny. Food is hilarious. And then she looks at the resume, which was mine, inside the, the jacket, the sleeve of the case. And it says Letterman. And she's she, got another job for you. She has another job for me. And so I'm like Al Pacino in The Godfather. Like I thought I was leaving late night comedy and going into this passion of food follow and my dreams follow my dreams but instead I got pulled back in pull me back in and we did the John Stewart show and the John Stewart show to MTV was that's me, when I found it that's when I found it yeah you guys were talking was, to my gen you guys were talking to me and my friends it was great yeah that's what we were and we had the knock hockey table thank you nobody had, remembers that I have said oh my god Madeline my wife is going to be so delighted that you just said that anytime 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 this ever comes up all I say is you remember you had the knock hockey uh, uh, coffee table nobody knows that was what the hell I'm we talking weren't going to give them a desk they didn't want a desk and it was then we realized like car chairs like really weird uh, kind of seating yeah they were from, they actually were they were seats from a car so uh, cool. like a Camaro or something <laughs> And uh, John didn't want a desk. So we go to the first like rehearsal and we realize he has nowhere to put his, like we're trying to be so different, but he, so he doesn't want a desk. And so now he's got nowhere to put, he's got a cup of coffee and a bunch of blue cards in his hand. And so that's when we knock hockey table. We're like, okay, you don't want a desk, but you're going to have to have something. Something, yeah. Something Even Arsenio had the Ottoman at the time. <clears throat> there was an Ottoman. But I can't remember where the knock hockey table went in relation to the Ottoman. Now you're probably no, like no, 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 no. I don't. I, I mean, in, I, no. You guys had the knock hockey table, but even Arsenio had an Ottoman. I mean, there was always something right. in front oh, of. Oh, okay, uh, Arsenio. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you need it. It's just there's a reason why everybody has a desk. 
You've got a one. Lot of stuff. I'm at a one. Lot of stuff. You have your business, especially you know, and blue cards will never go away. That's uh, right. So anyway, Still to this day, it's the tools and the the three by five colored index cards are the sort of the building wall. block of uh, of every television show I've ever produced or or worked on. I wonder uh, if they're still so, doing that to this day because we we are. Oh yes, <laughs> still they are. a board on the wall. There is always a board. There is always a board, and uh, it has to be because the board changes, and whatever board is in the executive producer, there'd be the script supervisor's job to make sure that it, everyone else's boards, you know, mirror like that it. one. Yeah. That was Greenwich Standard Time for the show. There'd be a grid, a printout at grid. But it was moving so much that the printing out, you would have so many versions of a piece of paper that it, the board is really, and you can sit and look at the board and in three dimensions kind of figure out what you're going to do. Uh, I miss having a board. Um, I, do. I like the moving thing. things on the board. I like, I like I yeah, that's close. It. It's not quite right, but if I move this to here, that totally works. There's a show, but what are we going to put in? Do we need a bumper there? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so we were at, uh, where was I? We're doing the Jon Stewart show. We're at MTV, and it is, it's magical. We do, you know, as opposed to the four hours a week I've been doing at Letterman, we're doing four half hours, which we're shooting in two days. So we shot on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Two shows, and we because it was MTV, we had a band on every single show, and every Thursday. Oh, a musical guest, not just your house yeah. band. A music. Oh, whoa. Oh That's... no, there was no house band. We had a musical guest on every single show, like everybody oh, you right. could ever want to see. It was that's MTV. Totally right. I'm, I'm remembering that all now. They had like the house band set up, but that was just always every day there was a different. Oh, that's right. And then it, the, the house music was actually canned music. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had our little theme song. Um, but no, there was a band on every single show. And then every Thursday, we would have a rap party. We shot at a place called National Studios on 42nd and like 11th. And we would go across the street to this place called the West Bank Cafe, where there would be a buffet, an open bar, every show. Now that would never happen again. Not I mean, from the restaurant. Was, you mean the show put that on? The production put that on? Oh, every day the show. Every Whoa. show we had a rap party. With yeah, the, no, with the people no. from the record companies, with the you know the bands would be hanging out. Whatever no, celebrity was, was there, they were almost using the show as an expense account, almost. No, every show had that at MTV. It was just part of the culture. It was, it was a very party culture, and you they didn't pay anybody anything, but they gave them all these fabulous perks. I see. And it was just a write-off for them, but it, that would never happen. Like, I work on shows now where, or the, the shows I've worked on most recently, it's like, you know, you, it just it's not going to happen. No, you I mean, need paperwork it, to fill the yeah. water bottle. It's ridiculous. Exactly. You need to fill out a rack. It has to be approved by 18 people in finance. And everything just got leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner. And people got more uptight and whatever. So I have such magical memories of that time. So we did two seasons at MTV. And then Arsenio Hall ended. Right before that happened, 
the merger of Viacom and uh, Paramount CBS yep. happened. And we had, there had been an article written about the Jon Stewart show, about John himself, that made the cover of New York Magazine. And it was a picture of John and it said, the man who should be Conan. Because John had been up for uh, late night and didn't get it. And it's Conan, I love Conan. I know a ton of people that work there. And I, I'm, you know, he's the best. But at that time in the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism about him because he was a writer. He wasn't a performer. It took him a little while to. I, I, sort I was of there at this, at this time in the beginning, and they were getting picked up by the week. I mean, it was it was yeah. it was ugly it, there in the beginning, before Conan was Conan. Yeah. It, it, it took him a minute to get comfortable, and then he got really comfortable. Um, but uh, so that someone at Paramount, who was the syndicator for Arsenio, came came across that New York magazine. Oh, did I lose you? You still there? <laughs> I'm not sure what happened. We lost her. You still there? Maybe her battery died. Uh, all right. Well, this should interesting. <laughs> Never had this happen before. Well, maybe Madeline will come back. In the meantime, let me tell you about Mad in the Kitchen, Madeline's new show. She's hosting. Uh, she is um, on YouTube, Mad in the Kitchen on YouTube. She's cooking and um, hosting, and it's a lot of fun. She does it from uh, all over. Sometimes she's in the kitchen, backyard. It's really fun. Uh, I would definitely check it out, Mad in the Kitchen. And in the meantime, um, I'm going to tell you that we're – see, are we still even here? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Could you guys see me? So funny. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, in that case, we'll probably just wrap it up because I can't tell what's going on here, but it seems as though everything's frozen. So I love you at home. Uh, please love one another. Matt oh, here we are. Now we're back. Boy, this is weird. Everything froze up. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for going through that with me then. And I'll try and see get Madeline back here. This is the ones and zeros world. Oh, she is here. Yeah. Boy, that was weird. Hi. Yeah, no, I just <laughs> was, it, was, was that your internet or mine that crapped out? <laughs> I think it was yours. I don't know what happened. Anyway, what were you saying? We were in the middle of John Stewart. I remember that. Okay. And, so and, and while we were gone, by the way, I told them all about Matt in the kitchen and how they should watch it on YouTube and pretty much all we talked about. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Uh, yeah, maddenthekitchen.com or just Mad in the Kitchen on YouTube. The most important thing they need to do is they need to watch an entire video, which will not be hard because they're very entertaining, and then they must subscribe. I just uh, – subscribers are the currency right now for me, and that, that, that would make it great. Anyway, so the Jon Stewart Show was one of those, once again, just magical place in time – things where everybody on that show went on to some form of greatness. And our director was Beth McCarthy, who would oh be the gosh. director. I've of, worked with her. Beth McCarthy Miller, who would be the director of Saturday Night Saturday Live, Live for 10 years. Steve Higgins, who is now Jimmy Fallon's uh, sidekick, 
who became a producer at SNL, was our head writer, the greatest guy in the world, uh, David Tell. I love seeing him in segments in the audience or whatever. So great. Yeah, he's just, he's an angel, like one of the good guys. And a bunch of the writers went there. A bunch of people went out to California to be sitcom writers and were never heard from again, but did have fabulous houses. And, uh, and then I would take the remaining stragglers and uh, bring them with me to start the Daily Show. And I called it a yogurt culture because it was kind of like the, the energy of what had been the Jon Stewart Show came with me to Comedy Central. And I was essentially recruited by Doug Herzog to create a Daily Show for Comedy Central. And I had no interest. I was trying to become pregnant and I would eventually adopt my baby boy but there were two really miserable years in there and I just didn't want to be on a uh, strip or every night TV. But Doug was relentless. we talked about the amnesia. Yeah. You forget every day. You have to, it's like giving birth. I imagine uh, <laughs> with that. If anyone remember what it was really like, they would never, the species would die out. Um, so it's the same thing there. <clears throat> so I, uh, he, he went after me for many years. No, no, like six months. And I kept saying, no, 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 no interest. And then Liz Winstead had, was my neighbor. And she, I had hired her to be a segment producer on the Jon Stewart show. And she and I, one night, way too late, came up with a funny idea. And we pitched it to now both Doug and Eileen had left MTV. That's Doug Herzog and Eileen Katz. And they'd gone to Comedy Central. And, uh, they had tried to get me to be the head of original programming. They offer, you know, they just wanted me around. And so Liz and I pitched them a show and they went, yeah, sure. And set us up in a room with Elise Roth, who was still my business partner at the time and uh, had us develop our little show. But meanwhile, every, you know, as if on, on command, every couple of weeks, Doug would come up to me and go, what are you doing? You got to do the, this daily show, that's what I need you for. And I was like, Doug, I don't want to do a daily show. I've told you this. And that was like this just ongoing sort of like dance. And then one day I'm coming back from like the restroom and he says, he kind of pushes me up against the wall, not in a me too way, you know, we're buddies and (laughs) and brothers and says, uh, Madeline Smithberg, what are you thinking? You're in there developing a show I can't afford to make. Uh, I need you to do this daily show. It's the job you were born to do. Uh, I'm going to give it all of my production budget and all of my promotional budget. You don't have to do a pilot. You can, the show will stay on for a year. And I said, this is okay. I said, okay. And that's how it happened. I walked into the office where the cars were. Yeah. Ugh. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I said, yeah, if you put it that way. And so I walk back in the office where the cards are on the wall for the show we were developing. And I say, okay, you guys are going to take the cards down. Uh, the plan is changing. And I got a lot of pushback initially and then acquiescence. And so we started developing a daily show for Comedy Central. Wow. And the rest, as they say, is history. But it wasn't like we had this clear vision. We sort of, it's like that game of elephant where you're like, does it have a little tail? Does it have a trunk? And you 
you arrive at the elephant by, so we were like, okay, we know it's topical. We know it's not pretendy. We know it's not funny characters, but what do we know it is? We know that it's, you know, topical. We already said that, you said that. And then we kept on hiring people and each person that we would hire would bring a different vantage point and point of view. And finally we hired Brian Unger, who was the original field correspondent. And he had been at working for CBS News. He had been my intern at Letterman <laughs> and he had been Liz's boyfriend, uh, but he was now at CBS and working for Connie Chung and disgusted by by television network news, just so fake, pretendy, self-absorbed that when Brian came on, the conversation kind of amplified and there were all these 24-hour news channels popping up every day. Dateline yes. NBC was on five nights a week. Yep. And one day we were in a meeting and I don't, it was like this aha moment of all the aha moments. And I don't remember who said it, or, but it was just somebody said, "What if we pretend we're them?" And that's how it happened. And 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 the rest is history, really. The rest is history. We will pretend that we are the media, and then we can make fun of both the media and the stories that they're covering. What was the year the Daily Show started? Oi, uh, was it ninety six? That sounds right to me. That was that's, that's that was I, a very very pivotal you know, year for me. That sounds right to years, me. And, and I, I mean, I was there for seven years, but I worked, you know, almost a year before it launched. It was like seven months before it launched. We were just developing it. And uh, yeah, and and that was kind of an incredible, of course it was an incredible ride. And it was also a lot of fun. And in the beginning, I never took it home with me. It was just like, really, you know, we played around because we didn't. We didn't it wasn't because you weren't attached to it? No, I was totally attached to it, but I knew it was there. We had a year. We didn't have to do a pilot. It wasn't that like oh, fighting I for your life you feeling. I see what you mean. And because we had so much creative freedom, like we never got notes. The only note we ever got from Comedy Central was more pop culture, and we would just ignore it. <laughs> uh, I got to hire Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell without any network approval. Isn't that I, I set Those it up so gone. that it, Oh, my God. Can you imagine? It's the approval process the again. Executive it's, it's, it's producer of the show hiring a correspondent. It's like elephant by committee. It's just, it was such wonderful times. Uh, and if you talk to Dove Herzog and ask him what his favorite time of his entire career in television was, he'll say the first year of The Daily Show. Wow. So cool. we were making magic and we never, the thing is that part of the show has been, it's the, the, Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It's been just erased because John just didn't want anyone to think about it. And so it, it there never are clips shown. They're not available. Yeah, it's so uh, no one ever talks about it. They sort of play it down and it was like a silly little show of, and it wasn't, it has no. all the bones. When I watch Trevor Noah to this day, I see the format that I created. A moment of Zen was my cat. She used to watch Charles Kuralt. And at the end of the show, he would go, no, we leave you with the Eastern Egret mating in the marshes. Yes. I used to and watch Charles Kuralt, too, on the road again and the whole bit. The best. But my cat would watch the birds. And so I said, we should end our show with the most disturbing piece of footage we can find. And that became the moment of Zen. 
anyway, it was uh, awesome. Just, her, my wife's brother still works there to this day. He's been there for, I don't know, at least a decade. Where? What is... Did I lose you again? Oh, no, you're there. Sorry. He works this, for... This, uh, for The Daily Show. Oh, awesome. What does he do? Uh, p- p- props and and he's a, a, a another shooter and other things. I don't know. Cool. Well, there's still <laughs> several people there. There's several people there that were there from the beginning. There's a couple of lifers on board. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, it, the ride got, you know, Craig left. I was asked to go to CBS. John comes on. And then it, like, went on crack because it really did. Yeah, when John got there, the show really, really. It took off. And, but it didn't happen in one day. It happened slowly and surely. And if you ever get the chance, watch a special we did called The Greatest Millennium, which was, it was a year end of 1999, but we yeah. treated it like we were looking back at the entire millennium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, some of our best work and so much fun. And, you know, They Might Be Giants was our house band. And we did all these amazing, uh, we did a, yeah, just so much fun. And that was really where the new Daily Show happened. And then, of course, it was the 2000 election that put us on the map and made The Daily Show the source, the source, the source. But so I, after the 2000 election, I was already feeling like, I have gone through all of this to try to become pregnant. I have this child and I'm missing everything. And I wasn't leaving at home at night and I was missing first steps and first words and play dates and birthday parties. And so I retired after the 2002 election. Uh, I was burnt. Like the idea that you can quote, have it all was not invented by a woman. It is mathematically impossible and you just, something suffers and it's always going to be you because you're not going to let your kids suffer. You're not going to let your job suffer. So you shortchange yourself and your husband essentially. And uh, I just realized that I needed to take a step back and just be the mom I had been wanting to be. And so I did that for three months and then I got a call from Garth Anser, who was the chairman of the WB, and he said, come to California. I'm doing a show called Steve Harvey's Big Time, and it's all your people. It's human interest. And we, so I went, I moved to LA, and uh, I basically piloted America's Got Talent. One of my producers left with two years. We did two seasons, and at the first two seasons of America's Got Talent were literally not just the people that we had booked, but the segments that I had helped my producers produce for the guests because she took all the segment notes and marched right over and gave them to Simon Cowell to get herself a job. Um, Anyway, ran a production company in LA, did a late night show for BET, launched a news franchise for Al Gore for current TV, uh, did a show with a talking chameleon, uh, had a pool. There's no point when you weren't busy, that's for sure. Yeah. And then, uh, then, uh, what happened? Oh, God, but he did, did National Geographic back together with Sam, moved to Seattle. I get to Seattle and I'm like, okay, there's no 
comedy television here. What am I going to do? Like, there's no industry. I'm in this place. He's going to work all day. It's raining. Yeah, I'm unemployable. What do we do? What am I going to do? So he gives me a cooking class for Christmas, and I take something called knife skills, and I go to this place, and there's 30 people, and we're basically chopping carrots and onions and celery for, you know, 90 minutes. And the chef who's teaching is wonderful. And he's very knowledgeable and, and lovely and charming, but he's not an entertainer. And I feel some entertainment needs to happen. So I start entertaining the troops. Like I'm, I never did stand up, but I'm always the one in the back of the room that's like making everybody crack up and I love it, but I don't ever want to have a microphone like that in front of my face. So at the end of the class, his name was Seppo. He calls me over. Can I talk to you? And I go, oh, boy, I am busted. Nah. You know, that was really disruptive. I'm writing the script in my head. And instead, he says, have you ever taught cooking? He said, I run a cooking school in Seattle. And we do corporate team building for the Microsoft Amazons of the world. And you have a great personality. And you clearly love food. And we can train you. And then I pivoted and I became a chef, Chef Madeline. It took me like a year to be able to to whatever, but I drew on all my lifetime of being obsessed with cooking. And it turns out I was great at leading the teams. I what have I done but lead teams all my life? Of course you were. Yeah, exactly. And I got hurt. I got cut. I got burnt. But after about seven months, I really started feeling comfortable, and I was loving it. And then Sam asked me to marry him, and we plan our wedding. For March 21st of this year on a beach in Loreto, Mexico. And I turned 60 like a year ago, literally a year ago yesterday. Congratulations. And I remember thinking to myself, look at you, Madeline Smithberg. You are 60 years old and you have pivoted and you have a new life. And look at you like and you should never do that. It's like asking the question, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Because you're going to get the answer. And, uh, isn't so, this great? <laughs> yeah, no, don't ever. Ixnay, Ixnay. Kanahura, as the Jews would say. So uh, on, I was supposed to be married on March 21st. And guess what happened? This virus. Yeah, March 21st happened. this year? Quite a bit happened, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I never got to have my wedding. And Blue Ribbon Culinary, where I was cooking, closed on, like, March 1st. So come, we end up going in front of a judge and just like tying the knot, my kids on, you know, FaceTime. And now we go in to have our honeymoon in quarantine and I'm a mess. I'm like, I pivoted, I'm a chef, but now I'm not. And what, what the, my, my, my wedding, I'd been playing, the TV producer was planning the wedding of a lifetime on a beach in Mexico. You can only imagine the detail I had, there was cards. I had cards on a board for the wedding when the tequila shots were happening, when I was guess, going to put on Guess the what? Prime. We're changing directions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take them down. We're going to just be locked in room. And you, you think you want to spend the rest of your life with the person, but you don't necessarily want to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, it's been intense. So about three weeks into the lockdown, I've stopped getting dressed. 
but I kind of drag myself into the kitchen and I, I cannot hardly form sentences. I'm so like, just bereft. And I hand say my phone and sort of like explain to him in grunts and hand signals that I'm going to make some pasta and he's going to record it and that I'm going to put it on YouTube. <laughs> and that was it. Matt in the kitchen was born. I started my channel in my pajamas, without my hair brushed, with my dirty dishes in the shot. I mean, my friend Elise said, well, you didn't clear the counter? Why am I looking at your your dish drainer? And I was like, oh yeah, and the dish soap? Like, what am I doing? I see my sponges, like, you don't want that in the shot. But what happened was, it just started growing and growing and growing, and yeah. people started reacting. And there are so many people that have come to me and said, I've never had courage to cook and you made it. I'm, I found this niche of like being relatable and, and simplifying things and making it not precious and doable and funny. And, and funny, all funny those, and fun for sure. Funny and fun. And all those cooking demos that I produced on Letterman I'm now you that I'm using those muscles to produce my own show. And then this man came out of the, the sky, his name is Sky, and he was an editor and he said, Hey, can I edit your videos? And so Sky has become on board now. He's co-producer with me. The last shoot I did, I had five cameras and a drone, and I was in a Whoa. garden. I have been on uh a, a morning show in uh out of Portland and Northwest, I've been on three times. I've been on a show out of Minneapolis. I'm booked again. I'm in talks with the Today Show. Evening Magazine was here uh, last week. And this, this is, is all in five months. This is amazing. I know. So food and Sam is my cameraman. We still use the iPhone as the hero cam. Uh, although I've now upgraded to the 11 uh, <laughs> just because it's a little bit of a better camera than what we were using, but it's Believe not, it or not we, we are still on the iPhones here as well. So I'm with you. Really? Yeah. They're pretty damn good. Yeah, it they're is pretty, pretty good. And we, yeah, I have a switcher now I have uh, on a normal shoot in my kitchen. We'll have three cameras and a switcher. And then when we do special occasions, like I did one called Steak on a Lake. Sky <laughs> lives on a lake, and I got to use a surfboard as a uh, countertop. And I the the Canadian geese flew by as I was cutting my steak, and I yelled, "Go back to Canada! <laughs> if you won't let us in your country, we don't want you here." And everybody, the people in like paddle boats, were dying laughing. Like I'm having so much fun. Well, and I'm starting fun. live streaming. I'm going to do this Saturday will be my first live stream on uh, both YouTube and Facebook. And we're going to figure out how to do it on uh, my Sam's in the window. He just scared me. He calls that <laughs> stealthing. Um, but anyway, you, it's have, been great. When you're on these other shows, are you, uh, are you, are, uh, are you I'm doing cooking. demos? You yes. are doing demos. So I'm doing So do you demos. bring all the stuff and go to the show or do they send the camera to you or is it, it both? Because of the pandemic, we do it all on Zoom. So wow. my kitchen is now set up like your basement. I have like a TV studio in my kitchen. I have lights. I've got the, you know, the Madonna remote 
uh, microphone. That's I can awesome. do dance. Routines. I guess my point is, uh, is there anything you can make in about an hour or so? Because I want to, I want to just be able to check. And Madeline, how are we doing on the egg rolls? And Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll totally in an hour. I can make things in six minutes. Yeah, I've been doing. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's now so, so great. and it's been just it, uh, hilarious. It's been so gratifying, so unexpected, and I really believe. And now I'm not being funny or sarcastic. I'm like a, a COVID success story. You are a COVID success you know? story. I'm a COVID success story. I've had something good actually happen to me in my life. Madeline, we've gone way long, um, but I, I have enjoyed Sorry. every second of this. I could, I could keep going and just, and just listen to you for I'll days. Come back. Can we just, I'll come can back. We, yeah, can we do it again? Sure. Fantastic. Fantastic. I can, we um, can do in the meantime, everybody should watch uh, Mad in the Kitchen on YouTube. Subscribe. You got to watch a video all the way to the end, but that's not hard. You're gonna watch when you watch one, it links into the other, and then you kind of, if you're just sitting on the couch using like the Apple TV or whatever, you're gonna find yourself just rolling into a few, and it's. It's kind of fun. You get inspired, too. You might want to decide to make some of these things yourself. But even if not, even if you don't have any interest in cooking, it's just – it's good entertainment. It's good fun. It's fun. It's there. I try to make them really fun because I feel like there's so much negative in the world right now that I just want yes. to give people a chance to, you know, escape for 11 minutes into Absolutely. a world that is where the most important thing is, you know, slicing mozzarella – so that's what I like. And the, the website is maddenthekitchen.com and the, all the videos are on there as well as a lot of stories and some Letterman clips, actually. Oh, no kidding. Love that. No. Yep. You've got Border Collie serving sheep. And By the uh, way, that Border Collie thing, we only got to the live at five part. Not only did it work so well in the show, they ended up putting it in the 10th anniversary special and yes. recreating it at Radio City Music Hall. Correct. All the but way, all the way up the aisle, story. through the lobby, out, down through the outer lobby, and then out the sidewalk, out into the cab. Correct. But I have a really amazing story that goes with that, with the behind the scenes, and I'll tell you it next time I'm on. I love it. Behind the scenes of the Radio City Music Hall <laughs> dog and sheep story. <laughs> dog and sheep story coming up. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's just so many funny memories. But thank you so much for listening to me for all this time i and, love uh, you madeline smithberg <laughs> <laughs> this has been a blast um will you send me a link so i can uh post it on my various portals of course i will i will it should uh, it's uh, the live version's up now and there'll be a replay we'll put up in a couple hours but i'll send it to you in an email <laughs> no, perfect, perfect, and, and everyone perfect. else Thanks. can just watch bye it. everybody thank you madeline smithberg i just adore you that was absolutely awesome Aw, thank uh. you. <laughs> so fun. fun. So fun. Bye. All right, everybody. Um, let's see. We didn't get to a couple things. We got to do some announcements, and we've got a TBT video. Uh, you know what? We're going to skip the TBT because we're so late, but I do have to do the announcements. Uh, of course, of course, if you're in a part of the world where you should be wearing a mask and you see someone who isn't, you could say to them, hey, need a mask? Shophunziger.com. That's what we did. Shophunziger.com. Nicholas Hunziger, fine art, good stuff. Uh, all sorts of designs, too. That's just one. I've got a whole bunch, and there are way more than the ones I have. Uh, also, 
I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that this episode, as well as all of the episodes of Late Night Playset lately, have been brought to you by St. Clair Insurance. St. Clair Insurance is a Haggerty company. They present Haggerty Insurance. If you are already a Haggerty customer and you don't have a rep, maybe you just signed up online, I highly suggest getting a rep. Even Haggerty suggests that. Go to uh, coverageforyourtoys.com. That's St. Clair Insurance. 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 It's like, um, uh, what's the Empire Carpet? And the phone number and the whole bit. Uh, this is Jay Ryan reminding you, they say all that separates men and boys is the coverage for their toys. St. Clair Insurance has coverage for your toys. What are toys, by the way? This is a long commercial. What are toys? It could be anything. <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to insure your lawnmower, I bet you could do it. But boats, jet skis, cars, especially collector cars, RVs, uh, your home, your business, all the stuff that requires insurance. Check it out with St. Clair. Uh, CoverageFreeToys.com. I think that's it. I think we got through all the stuff. Next week, next week here, uh, I'll be back on Tuesday with Tuesdays with Tori. And on Thursday, we have Gabe Abelson. Another let- it was Letterman month. Uh, Gabe was a writer on Letterman. He's a wonderfully talented writer and mentalist even. And he's going to be uh, here, I think, via Zoom. And we're going to have a, a, a nice catch-up. He's one of my favorite people. We had, <laughs> had a conversation the other day. <laughs> thought it'd be pretty quick. It ended up being like 90 minutes. So it's one of those people. Uh, not dissimilar today. Love everybody at home. Please love one another. And uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, Breakfast Club. We're not going to do it at Newcomb's because of the fires, but we are going to do it um, up at, uh, what's it called? Bears Divide. Bear, Bear Divide. Bear Divide. B-E-A-R Divide. Put it in your, uh, in your maps and stuff and figure it out. Uh, love everybody. Love everyone else. <laughs> please love one another. See you tomorrow. If you're going to Breakfast Club, see you next week for everybody else. Oh, 